0: And Today, I'm starting out the new year the way every new year needs to be started out, with a top 10 list. This morning, I've got the world's top 10 shortest books, the world's top 10 shortest books. Here they are. You might notice the list includes a few pretend titles. Number 10, America's Most Popular Lawyers, very slender edition there. Number nine, Different Ways to Spell Bob. Short book. Number eight, The Engineer's Guide to Fashion. Sorry about that, guys. Number seven, The EPA's Spotted Owl Recipe Book. Very short. Uh, Number six, The Loganville Travel Guide. All the top spots in Loganville. Uh, Number five, this is a short book, Everything Men Know About Women, very, very short. Number four, Everything Women Know About Men, (laughs) also short. Number three, The Amish Phone Directory, just uh, not many entries there. And then the number two shortest book, The Atlanta Falcons 2023 Highlights, (laughs) a barren book, and then the world's number one shortest book, Pastor Sandy's Jokes That Are Actually Funny. (laughs) These would all be very, very short books indeed. And speaking of short books, we have two to study today Second and third John are the shortest books in the Bible, In the original text, both combined for less than 500 words. I like to call them the Lilliputian letters, after the little people in Gulliver's Travels. You could also call them the fruit of the loom letters, since both are brief. Right, brief. John begins his second letter with an introduction the elder. See, these two letters were perhaps the last New Testament books written. By the time that he had penned them, John was 100 years old. He was the last living of the original 12 apostles. And John's stature was unsurpassed in the Christian community of his day. John was known not just as an elder, but as the elder. He was an elder with a capital E. And he writes to the elect lady and her children. Some expositors believe the elect lady is actually a sister church. In the New Testament, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. The elect lady could be another fellowship. But it's also possible the elect lady and her children are titles for specific believers. To me, it's more probable here that John has a person in mind. Of course, some have suggested that both ideas are true. That he could be writing to a devout Christian lady whose vibrant witness had birthed a church full of spiritual children. Now, no personal names are used here by John because he wrote at a time of fierce persecution, and the elder didn't want to provide the enemies of Christianity any specific targets. John writes to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And here is John's theme in this little letter, love in truth. First John told us that if we love God, we'll love our brother. But here we're told that real love never ignores the truth, that God's love is always in harmony with God's truth. If ever our love causes us to ignore the truth, If in the name of love we tolerate or gloss over or accept a falsehood, realize we're not exhibiting the true love of God. For real love affirms and supports God's truth. And in today's can't-offend, tolerant of everything, watered-down world, many churches have adopted this attitude, love is supreme, unity at all costs type of mentality. To them, nothing is as important as love and peace and unity. But apparently, they have forgotten the words of our Lord Jesus. For in Luke chapter 12, verse 51, the Lord told us, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, Three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus promised that he would draw a line in the sand. Jesus came to confront us with the truth about God and about life and about us. And we're forced to make decisions that put us at odds with folks who chose the opposite. Sometimes friction even erupts in the same family. Not everyone humbles themselves and receives the truth. It's been said, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you mad. To insist on unity at all costs glosses over the reality of objective truth, God's truth. Once a pastor, he called the kids to the front of the church for the little children's sermon. And the pastor taught on unity that morning. He said, Boys and girls, God wants us all to be one. A little four year old boy, he shouted out, Yeah, but I want to be five. <laughs> the truth is, all people are not one. To suggest that Christians and Muslims and Hindus and atheists and Mormons should just overlook their differences and love one another as brothers and sisters is ridiculous. As Christians, we need to love all people and point them to Jesus. But for us to embrace them as family is to deny the truth that saves us and that defines us. Real love will never deny God's truth. And to suggest that it really doesn't matter what you believe, that doctrine is irrelevant, that all that matters is love, reveals a naivety about what the Bible really teaches. Now, please understand, your doctrine is one day going to determine your future eternal destination. Your doctrine will determine your destination. Having love. Even faith is not enough. You see, the real question is, can the object of my faith save me? Just because a baby sucks a bottle is no guarantee he or she will grow up healthy. It depends on the contents of the bottle. And likewise, faith alone will never save us. Faith and love have to be grounded in truth. And John loves in truth. He writes, And not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. To John, truth is eternal. It is forever. Truth is forevermore. It doesn't morph from age to age, from generation to generation, certainly from person to person. No, God's truth remains unaltered by human opinions. God's truth is timeless. In verse 3, John extends his greetings to this elect lady and her children. He says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. And then he says in verse 4, I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth, as we received commandment from the Father. Apparently, John had been in contact with a group of Christians who had been discipled by this elect lady, and he rejoices that they're doing well. This was a credit to her and to her ministry. He says, And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love that we walk according to His commandments." Notice, love is measured not by how we feel, but by how we walk. In short, it's by what we do. That's how we measure love. Love is a lifestyle. Real love is love in action. See, if I really love my wife, I'll not just do what's easy or convenient for me to do. What I feel like doing. No, I'll love her in the way that she wants and needs to be loved. You see, love aims to please, and this should be our approach to God. Anybody can say they love God, but a real love for God walks according to what pleases Him, as John says, according to His commandments. And this is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. And the apostle John asserts that God's commandments haven't changed. From the outset of Jesus' ministry, from the beginning, He taught us to love one another. Theologian Richard Niebuhr once wrote, The great Christian revolutions have come not by the discovery of something that was known before. They happen when somebody takes radically something that was always there. You see, we tend to look for new tactics, but it is the rediscovery of the simple truths that reignites our passion. We don't need a new commandment. We need to move out of our comfort zone and put our love into action. Really love people and it will change the world. Verse 7 tells us, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. It was Mark Twain who once said, A lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is putting on its shoes. Remember, Paul warned the Ephesians about being tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. False doctrine constantly blows through the church. Whether it's those in John's day who denied Jesus' humanity or those today who deny his deity, we need to be on guard. Warren Wiersbe once quoted the pastor of a faithful and biblical church as saying, If I took my eyes off this work for 24 hours and stopped praying, it would be invaded before we knew it. He knew the importance of being vigilant in the cultivation of sound doctrine. Once there was a little boy who was asked by a Sunday school teacher if he knew the meaning of false doctrine. This little guy thought for a minute, actually thought the teacher had said false doctoring. And so he replied, false doctoring? That's when a doctor gives the wrong stuff to people who are sick. And did you know that also defines false doctrine? It's giving wrong stuff to the spiritually sick. And here again, John tells us how to spot the person who is false doctoring. They may be right on 95% of what they say and teach, but invariably they will stray when it comes to what they believe about Jesus Christ. John identifies the deceivers of his day as those who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. We've talked about it before. John battled a heresy that today we call Gnosticism. It was the system of belief that denied the humanity of Jesus. In contrast, most false teachers today deny Jesus' as deity, and both are wrong. Our Lord Jesus revealed himself as the God man. He was both fully man and he was fully God. Well, John continues, he says, Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. John had labored for years to lay a solid foundation of right teaching in the church of his day. But he knew all that he had gained could be lost. And you know, as I look at what God has done here at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, I realize that if we don't continue to serve and continue to support and continue to give and continue to pray, we too can lose the gains that we've made. See, if we just kick back and say, oh, I did my time in the nursery when my kids were younger. That's for somebody else now. Or, oh, I gave my money to the last project. You know, it's somebody else's turn now. Or I've done the usher thing. You need to find somebody else now. Or I've been involved in the church. Now I deserve a little time off. If we now pass the buck, we can lose what we've worked so hard and so long to gain. We need to look to ourselves and continue to do our part. And then he says in verse 9, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. And this is why it is so crucial that you are correct, in your belief about Jesus. For if you are not right about Jesus, you can't be right with God. Jesus is the means by which God has chosen to redeem a wayward world. Jesus is the one bridge between man and God. There's a bridge in China. It's the Danyang Kushin Grand Bridge, and it purports to be the world's longest. It's part of the Beijing to Shanghai Highway. Its length is 540,682 feet. That bridge is a tad more than 102 miles long. Can you imagine? But there is a longer bridge. That's not the longest bridge. Jesus is a bridge that connects heaven to earth. Jesus is the one bridge that links God to man. He spans the enormous gulf that has been caused by our sin. Today, even though you've broken and violated God's law, God has a bridge built for you to get from heaven or from heaven to you. And you can still have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ if you pass across that bridge. Well, verse 10 goes after those who don't abide in the doctrine of Christ. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. Now, in the first century, there were traveling apostles who crisscrossed around the church and ministered in the various churches. This was common. You see, infant churches in those days lacked good leadership. So there were men who traveled from place to place to sort of fill in the gaps, Churches would put these fellows up and would provide their needs and would support their ministry. And yet there were false teachers who took advantage of the church's generosity. In a second century document known as the Didache, or the teaching of the Twelve, instructions were given to churches concerning these traveling apostles. The Didache reads, every apostle who comes to you should be received as the Lord. But he should not remain more than one day. And if there is some necessity, a second as well. But if he should remain for three, he is a false prophet. That's good advice. In other words, if a fellow stays more than the weekend without offering to pay you for his upkeep, he's nothing but a freeloader. He's just a deadbeat. It continues, it says, And when the apostle departs, he should receive nothing but bread until he finds his next lodging. Now notice this. But if he requests money, he is a false prophet. And not everyone who speaks forth in the Spirit or who claims to be speaking for God is a prophet. But only if he has the kind of behavior which the Lord approves. From his behavior then will the false prophet and the true prophet be known. And every prophet who in the Spirit, or who that is speaks as if from the Holy Spirit, orders a table to be spread, shall not eat therefrom. But if he does, he is a false prophet. (laughs) If truly God's Spirit speaks, the man will order food for the hungry and the needy around him, not for his fat cat self. And if he does, you know he's a false prophet. Just that simple. The Didache also reads, whoever says in the Spirit, give me money, do not listen to him. Wow, <laughs> we need these instructions today. Some knucklehead comes in and says, give me money. I'll give you the doors, I'll give. I'll give you a foot, that's what I'll give you. If he says, give me money, do not listen to him. But if he says that, that it should be given for others who are in need, then let no one judge him. Hey, a greedy or a lazy person in the ministry is still a greedy and a lazy person. Don't give in to his appeals for money no matter how spiritual he sounds. It all reminds me of the old maxim, treat your guest as a guest for two days. On the third day, give him a rake. Put the guy to work. The Didache was written in the second century to correct the first century church's lack of discernment. Apparently, the inaugural church seems to have abounded in love but lacked discretion. They had the habit of taking in everyone, true and false teacher. The church was so enamored with the need to love, they failed to support the truth. And thus John is teaching us, a love not wedded to the truth is not real love at all. And it seems this problem in the early church was so prevalent that Christian charity was actually helping the heretics and perpetuating the spread of their heresies. For this is why John warns in verse 11, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. In essence, if you offer a false teacher support, you become an accomplice to their deception. You're aiding and abetting a deceiver. If a Mormon missionary comes to your door dying of thirst, or if you see him on the side of the road, his bicycle's gotten a flat tire, well, please help him to safety. You can do that. I mean, cool him down and give him a ride home. But don't just let him relax all day so that he can resume his mission or help him fix his flat tire so he can be about his business. He'll just keep peddling his heresy. No, don't become an accomplice in his efforts. As one commentator puts it, John warns us not to unintentionally collaborate with the enemy. Don't be mean, but when he comes to your door, don't moisten lips that lie with your lemonade. That's from chapter by chapter by Pastor Sandy. John concludes his letter, second letter, Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. And this is why these letters were so short and to the point. John was planning a visit where he would end up filling in all of the details. So he concludes, the children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Now John's third letter begins, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Second John was written to the elect lady. Third John, to a man named Gaius. Now There are actually three Gaiuses in the New Testament. Acts 19 speaks of Gaius, the Macedonian. Acts 20 lists Gaius of Derby, which was a city in Galatia. And Romans 16 and 1 Corinthians 1 speak of Gaius, who lived in Corinth. The Gaius to whom John is writing here could be either of those three men that I've mentioned, or he could be a different guy altogether, we're not sure. But whoever this Gaius was, John loved him in truth. The Greek name Gaius means on earth. And the message that John sends to Gaius would indeed apply to all of us who presently live on the fallen planet. Third John, in short, is a letter from the elder to the earthlings. And welcome to the shortest book in the Bible. In the original language, it's 26 words shorter than 2 John. And the names of four men are prominent in this book. John the Elder, Gaius, Demetrius, and a man who is held in not so flattering a light, a villain named Diotrephes. And thus, I like entitling 3rd John after the 1980s movie, Three Men and a Baby. John, Gaius, and Demetrius were the men, while Diotrephes acted like a big baby. Verse 2, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. And here is one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted verses in all of the Bible. In fact, its misapplication has led millions of Christians into serious error. When the Apostle John, or what the Apostle John here intends as a simple greeting, has been taken by today's prosperity preachers as a promise of perfect health and ultimate wealth for all Christians. Teachers like Kenneth Copeland and Oral Roberts and Joel Osteen, among many others, are major culprits of this erroneous teaching. See, here's the problem. Throughout the Bible, especially Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith, even across church history, there have been countless examples of devout believers who suffered financially, who did not prosper, who didn't live their lives in perfect health. And yet, despite their trials, they gain God's approval by faith. Godly people can be poor. They can get sick. They can have troubles, just like sinners. Hey, we live in a germ-infested, fallen world. And to take what John meant as a common salutation, just a simple wish for health and for prosperity and for happiness as an ironclad promise is an example of shoddy biblical interpretation. The Greek scholar Gordon Fee writes, To extend John's wish for Gaius to refer to financial and material prosperity for all Christians of all times is totally foreign to the text. John neither intended that, nor could Gaius have so understood it. Thus, it cannot be the plain meaning of the text. And one of the first rules of hermeneutics or biblical interpretation is to look at the verse in its historical and cultural context. Remember the adage, a text without a context ends up a pretext. Gordon Fee refers to John's phrase here in verse 2 as the standard form of greeting in a personal letter of antiquity. It was simply a hopeful and happy greeting. He's wishing his readers well, both spiritually and physically. John gets to the body of his letter in verse 3. He says, For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. Now it's interesting that throughout the New Testament, the Christian life is frequently referred to as a walk, not a run, not a hop, not a skip. Not a crawl, but a walk. We're to walk in love. We're to walk in faith. We're to walk in the Holy Spirit. We're to walk as children of light. See, when you run, you can get exhausted, can't you? And when you hop, you can trip. And when you skip, you miss things. And when you crawl, you're on all fours. You got no focus. But when you take a walk, do you like taking walks? I love to take. When you take a walk, your attention is on the one you're with. And in the Christian life, that's Jesus. Walking is just a consistent, steady, one foot in front of the other progress. Step by step, that's Christianity. Time spent walking refreshes and rejuvenates. And to walk in truth is to continue with God, trusting and learning and applying the truths of God's Word to your everyday life. Gaius was a man who walked in truth. John says to Gaius in verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And just like John, as your pastor, trust me, I have no greater joy than to hear of one of you walking well. To hear you're making a difference for Jesus in your world is what keeps me and the other pastors going around here It truly is our greatest joy. He says, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. And notice here, God desires for his work to be fueled and funded. By his people. Here the ministers of the church are commended for having taken nothing from the Gentiles or from the unbelievers. I'll never forget the first time that we studied this verse. We began this church, Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, in 1980 in our living room, and we began in the book of Luke. By late 1982, we had studied through the New Testament and we had reached 3 John. It was our first journey through the New Testament. Forty-three years later, we're finishing up our sixth trip. At the time, we were occupying an old warehouse on a temporary basis. The owner didn't really want to rent the building to us. He didn't charge us any rent. He was just hoping that we'd get out as soon as we could. He was doing us a favor, just allowing us to meet there until something else opened up. Well, the weeks dragged into months. There were very few alternatives on the horizon. And that's when we read 3 John verse 6. They went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. In other words, God didn't want his people mooching off non-believers. He wants his people carrying their own weight, paying their own freight. As John puts it, he wants us traveling through life in a manner worthy of God. And he convicted me. Man, I read those words and I was convicted. For in occupying that warehouse without paying rent, it felt like we were taken from the Gentiles. We were drawing worldly support for our spiritual venture. And John says it's the responsibility of God's people to pay their own bills. And so that next week, I decided to write an unsolicited check and send it to our landlord for our rent that month. I remember he couldn't believe it. He called me up. He said, wait a minute, you guys got money? (laughs) He didn't really want to rent to us. He had other plans for the building. But after a few months of us just sending him money, he asked if we wanted to sign a lease. And I believe it was God's way of blessing our obedience. The point of the story is that God wants to fund his work through his people. Not through secular grants, not through other sources. God reserves for believers in Jesus the high joy of giving to his work. And then he says in verse 8, We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. And here's a beautiful principle. For when you give of your time or your hospitality or your money or your effort or your prayers, to a servant of God, you are in essence investing in their ministry. You have become a partner or a stockholder with that person. And you are sharing, you will share in their reward. If you gave to this church in 2023, you contributed to Christian ministries in England, in Germany, in Italy, in Kenya, in the Congo, in Canada, in Honduras, in Haiti, many other places as well and now you share in the rewards of ministries you've never even visited, that's wonderful then he says in verse 9 and we come to him, I wrote to the church but Diotrephes who loves to have the preeminence among them does not receive us, can you imagine not receiving the elder John here is the infamous Diotrophies: the big baby. You know, I read recently where the average American eats 70 hot dogs a year. I found that hard to believe. I only eat 69. <laughs> 70 hot dogs a year. That's a lot of hot dogs. But this man diotrephes he didn't eat hot dogs. He was a hot dog. No one should relish being diatrophies. See, here's a man that loved to bask in the limelight. Man, he liked being the center of attention. Reminds me of a comment Woodrow Wilson made of a proud associate. He said, He was the only man I ever knew who could strut while sitting down. And this diatrophies, he could strut, man. He loved to be in control. He was a power monger. Diotrephes knew how to manipulate and intimidate and dominate. And when he came to the church, he brought along this attitude. See, Diotrephes was the self-appointed church sheriff. He thought that nothing could go on in his town, even in Jesus' name, without his approval. And it was this lust for the preeminence that made him jealous of others, even John. He was threatened by the ministries of fellow believers. Diotrephes refused the elder, no less. John, the apostle. Verse 10 accuses him of making vicious slurs to discredit the elder. John writes, Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. Diotrephes was a slanderer. Bible expositor A.T. Robertson, he once wrote an article for a Southern Baptist magazine. And in it, he depicted the conduct of diatrophies without actually naming him. Well, in the weeks that followed, 25 Baptist church leaders from across the state wrote letters to the editor canceling their subscriptions to the magazine. They all claimed that Robertson had been pointing his finger at them It is sad, but the church today is still plagued by diatrophies. when a church develops a sort of union boss who dictates to God and to God's people what can and can't be done. The spirit is grieved and ultimately quenched. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 20. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them, Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Christian leaders are to be servants, not sergeants, disciples, not dictators. It's been said the challenge of a leader is to lead and not drive inspire and not dominate, create respect and not fear, win support and not opposition. The only master we have, the one master we have, the only boss for the believer is Jesus Christ. Verse 12 continues Diotrephes' indictment. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Not only did Diotrephes oppose John the elder, he opposed anyone else in the church who supported John and tried to offer John assistance. With Diotrephes, it was his way or the highway. The man didn't allow for dissenting opinions. Diotrephes was an arrogant man. He was a cult leader in the making. And notice what John says at the beginning there, verse 10. When he comes, he's going to put Diotrephes in his place. Don't you wish he could have been present for that moment? (laughs) Sparks flew. The old man, boy, he got his dander up, I'm sure. The elder put his foot down. He says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. The knowledge of God produces a desire to obey and walk in His commandments. Well, instead of being a diatrophes, we should all be like Demetrius. Verse 12. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. See, nothing is really said of Demetrius other than he he was a good example. He had a good testimony from all. I suppose we could contrast Demetrius with Diotrephes. And if we did, apparently Demetrius was a humble servant leader. He was always willing to lend a helping hand. If Diotrephes was about putting people down, Demetrius was about lifting people up. What a good brother to have. Verse 13, I had many things to write. But I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. You know, some things are communicated just best face to face. Ever sent an email that was misinterpreted? (laughs) We all have, haven't we? It happens commonly. I mean, tone, inflection, volume, body language are all absent from an email. And the same is true with a letter. No matter how awkward or unpleasant it might be, messages need to be conveyed. Important messages need to be conveyed face to face. And John will arrive shortly to update his friends. Well, John concludes, peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. I like that, by name. He's not going to do it in the letter in case it gets intercepted. He doesn't want to make anybody a target for the persecution. But John has been reflecting on the love of Jesus in this letter. And remember what John said of Jesus, the good shepherd? He said, the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And so when John tells his readers to greet his friends by name, he is exemplifying the personal and the intimate and the very specific love that Jesus has for each of you. You've heard the statement, I love humanity. I just can't stand people. You ever heard that statement? That is not Jesus. Jesus loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love.